0: So it's been a while. I've interviewed a lot of amazing artists, and I got to tell you, this thing has been unbelievably fulfilling for me. It's been a lot of work, and uh, you know, and you know, there's been some sacrifices because I'm not making a dime on this thing. Um, but it's absolutely worth it because I, even though I've been painting for 20 years, I feel like my education has exploded. I have been inspired, I've been taught, I've been motivated, Um, I mean, you name it, I have gotten so much good out of these interviews, and I hope that you guys have too. But here's the thing, what I'd really like to do on top of interviewing all of these great living artists is to interview some dead artists. And obviously I can't do that, but I had this idea that was inspired by a man I met some 10, 15 years ago. His name is Micah Christiansen he came to me and other artists when he was working on his doctorate thesis because he believed that by getting to know living artists it would help him to understand the minds of dead artists why all art historians don't think like this i have no idea it is brilliant and he took it so seriously that there was times he was literally Upstairs in my loft in my studio. I have this balcony in my studio He was at the ba- on the balcony where I could see him while I was painting working on his thesis Like just to spend time with a living artist. So it's that mentality that philosophy that inspired this particular program that we are starting we are going to combine my experience as a painter of 20 years with his extensive knowledge of art history, and try and get inside the heads of the artists that we both admire. And I know you're going to like these artists. And I know it's going to be a lot of speculation, but, but, but I think with uh, my experience as a living artist and all of his knowledge, I think we'll be able to add some insight. And I know you're going to like this. So, stay tuned for many great episodes with the great Micah Christensen. And also, please, Micah's not making a dime. I'm not making a dime. In fact, I'm spending money every month. None of my guests are making a dime. But we are sharing this content with you because we love this stuff. So all I ask of you is to give us a great rating on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on our YouTube channel or website. And maybe even leave a comment, because that stuff helps this information to spread and to get this podcast out there so more people can see it. Because uh, why be selfish here? I'm sharing with you. Help me share with more people. So I'd really appreciate that. Thanks a ton. Enjoy this episode. Micah Christensen, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you, it's a, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, well, it's an honor to have you. Which artist did you bring to talk about today? I brought Joaquin
1: Sorolla. His full name is Joaquin Sorolla y Bastida, Spanish artist. He was born in the 1860s and lived to the 1920s, which is, um, for a lot of period people, one of the most exciting periods in art, and kind of the last, dying cough for many people of those who are working
0: in traditional figurative art. Really? So, he is, he's, so why do he's you say that? one of the greatest. Why do you say that it was one of the last?
1: Well, okay. So this could be a longer discussion. Okay. Um, but there was clearly at the turn of the century, a, a different education model that took over. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there has been, at least when I was growing up, there's always a discussion about how modernists destroyed everything mm-hmm. when it came to studying the human figure and tradition. The equivalent would be um, if all of a sudden music schools stopped teaching scales and just handed people instruments and said, play them however you want to play them, right? That's kind of the narrative that I grew up with. But it's a little more nuanced than that. Part of it has to do with that uh, there was a whole new world of of money that could be made as an artist doing illustration and and so commercial art and illustration um took over a lot of the educational drive Mm -hmm. and 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 uh collectors were were less and less interested in in um they were they were more and more interested in the, the kinds of experimental work that was being done by people like picasso moreau and Gauguin and a lot of these other figures. And so you you stopped having the same kinds of education that existed in the French or international academies where Soroy was trained. These Ecole de Beaux-Arts, the Academie Julienne, the um the, the 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 Royal Academies of the World, they still limped on in various ways, but they just weren't they weren't driving the conversation as much as they used to. But when Soroya was alive, the first part of his life, especially, he was there during arguably the greatest period of these schools, one of the greatest periods, at least, where they were fully stocked with great teachers. They had more students than they could house at any one time. So competition was really driving the kinds of um, work that was being made. And um, Soroya... Um, lived to see kind of the last of it. And there are a couple, there's a painting here that will give you an idea that we'll talk about how that dynamic changed in his mind mm-hmm. of what the school wanted and what the old academy was and what he felt like he needed to paint to survive and to be who he wanted to be as an artist.
0: So why did you choose Soroya for the first discussion in this series? Yeah, Soroya is... Um maybe
1: the artist I've spent the most time on
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the reason I've spent the most time on him is because because of this idea of he had this amazing arsenal of skills that he he developed in the Academy um and was one of the last people to really receive it that's one is I wanted to know what did it look like in the classroom to acquire those skills right Or on your own. So that was one reason. Another one is, as an artist, he was uh, also a photographer, and um, grew up with the technology, and he was—he didn't see it as a—he didn't see any contradiction in terms of being a photographer and a painter, and of using technology to its greatest extent. Hmm. And then he's also—he's from Spain. And rose to international fame to the point that he's friends with Sargent, he's friends with Zorn, he's friends with Louis Tiffany, um, Claude Monet's calling him the greatest painter of light. And so in a way, he's he goes from being from this very provincial part of Spain at the time to international fame. And that is another interesting story, right? Of mm. He's got... He's got all of these elements. And then then the final one is, and, and this is something I've wanted to, I still don't have an answer for, is why, why didn't he create a whole school around himself? Right? Hmm. He did teach. But why wasn't there a generation that picked up what he did and really become as successful as he did? That's true with some masters. It was true with Soroya. And part of that has to do with change in taste and hmm. that's another interesting story because people like you're familiar with Diego Rivera probably mm-hmm. who's married to Frida Kahlo Rivera studied with Soroya you'd never oh, think I didn't it. know that yeah very few people know that but um you you there there are people who carry on some of his skills but for the most part he his his real students are today's artists Today, he's more
0: popular than he was probably when he died. But did he make a living as in a living artist? Oh, he was very successful. Yeah, okay. you, you mean
1: when he was alive? When he was alive.
0: Yeah, when he was, he was alive. Very,
1: very, yeah, was alive. very mm-hmm. successful. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the paintings, too.
0: Okay, yeah. okay. That's, I've sent you some works. All right, let's look at some of those works right now. So this is the work that you suggested we start with. Um, yes, this, okay. this
1: is Return... Of return from fishing, this is probably the one that gets the most seen by any of Story's work, and it was done um, at the height of his career when he's finally established his style. He is 32 years old when he does this.
0: Oh, you got to be freaking painting, kidding me!
1: The painting is enormous. <laughs> we're talking. We're talking. This is um, uh, um, not the biggest one he did by any means, but it's it's roughly. Um, 50 inches, 40 inches by, um, 70 inches around. Okay.
0: So it's not right. life-size figures.
1: Right no. And it hangs in the Musée d'Orsay. Oh, no, no, no. I've got that wrong. I was thinking centimeters. It's 104 by 159 inches. Oh. Because so some of these are in centimeters. I'm sorry. So it it is almost... What is that? Eight feet so tall n- and 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 uh, and fifteen feet wide. No, roughly?
0: nine, almost nine feet tall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, still not and quite life size, but certainly not because the other the other dimensions were actually fairly small. Yeah. And the
1: reason why I wanted to start in the middle of his career with this painting and introduce him is because this is how most people in the world encountered Soroya. This is the painting that kicked off his international fame. It was submitted to the Salon in Paris, where it won a gold medal, and that's why it was acquired by the French state and put in the. Um, in, in right now, you see it in the Orsay, and they've they've skied it in the Orsay, meaning they've hung it so high that it isn't very well lit or very well seen. Oh. But every time I've gone, there are a group of people gathered around it, um, and it's it it shows off what he was very good at. He. Um, he was born in Valencia, and Valencia is right on the Mediterranean. And he would um, go out on the beach at this point in his life, and he would paint most of this large size canvas on the actual canvas with a giant brush, like a, like a
0: even sometimes a five or six foot. Wait, wait. Can you brush. restate that? I'm not sure I understand what you mean. He paint most of this canvas on the canvas. I'm not sure if I follow. I
1: paint most of it, most of the painting on the full canvas in plain air
0: so not he's not doing studies he's just going straight into it so Out he would
1: sometimes do these studies so for this piece we have both we have images of him working on the full-size canvas in plain air with giant brushes we also have a number of drawings that he did that were you know large-ish as he was working through the idea. And I think that he did that uh, because for this piece in particular, because he knew that it was going to be very scrutinized. Um, And often when you go to the salon, you would hand out, people would want to see your studies for the works that you did. And you'd also hand them out as souvenirs, your studies for a very successful piece. So if you had one that got a lot of renown, you would literally like pull out your drawing or, or your drawings or your oil studies and sign them with a personalized note to somebody who who admired it, right?
0: No, but yeah.
1: but he's Soroya is is um, is going to his hometown of Valencia, painting common people and animals and everyday scenes and doing them in a virtuosic way.
0: Okay, but and before that, you move on, I want to get, I, I'm yes. still on that plain air thing. So he would bring a 104 uh, inch tall canvas, almost nine feet tall. So that's yeah. eight feet, eight inches tall. Yeah. And then you say like uh, almost 15 feet wide out on the beach. And then he yeah. would paint this scene. Um, He couldn't, it's not possible for him to have the oxen and the people and the wind blowing the sail exactly like that so what do you imagine he was trying to accomplish in there are a
1: lot there are a lot of great images of him painting and he would have pieces of the painting in front of him and so he would have maybe just an oxen or maybe just the man standing and holding the yoke or the or 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 just the boat Okay. And he would do pieces of it at a time. And then he would put the rest of it together. He was, you know, it's an interesting question because there was a generation that was 100 years before Soroya that was only doing ink washes or watercolors on in very small scale in plain air. And then they would go back to the studio and work for months on the larger scale version of it yeah right and then there was this generation that became really obsessed with painting um with painting in plain air in 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 dynamic ways soroya was one who really pushed the envelope in that and he his uh his master his teacher who i think he got a lot of this from was a man named Ignazio pinato and pinato studied with many of the of these italian artists called the Macchiaoli. And the Macchiaoli were, um, they prefigured the Impressionists in France and were doing a lot of radical plein air work too. So um there's a, a comment that was made once um, where Soroya said that he took fencing lessons in order to improve his brushwork. No he would way. Use, He'd use large brushes and it would require a lot of control with a large brush and the fencing lessons were important for that. Mm -hmm. So it's a different way of thinking about, I don't know the answer to your question fully. Why? Sometimes he would just take photographs of a scene and then he'd work on, on it, but um, at at the studio, but he, he almost always preferred life working from life directly. Almost Mm -hmm. always. Yeah he did a lot of small oil studies but for some of these bigger scenes you get the sense that there was a little bit of theater to it too
0: yeah you know it's funny that he took fencing lessons because um with my students they they love to put their toes on the base of the easel and they're 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 practically rubbing their noses on the drawing you know they just get real close and they're doing this kind of thing right and i've always said to them imagine you're like zorro stand back put put your put your feet you know perpendicular to the canvas hold your arm out and paint like your brush is a sword and i've always thought that and it's just it's really interesting that he actually took fencing lessons in order to You're, to get that yeah. sort of stance i think it's it's essential that
1: kind of thinking of not being up close against the canvas mm-hmm. is essential to understanding soroya specifically but spanish art from this era in general and a lot of art from this era because the the spanish were a kind of unknown quantity to the rest of europe for the longest time um you think that um, in the french academy they were really obsessed with italian works of art they're looking at rafael they're looking at um andrea del sarto michelangelo they're looking at, at these very tightly painted for the most part pieces they're not not even Really big fans of Titian and Veronese, the, the 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 Venetian school, which are much more loose in their painting. They're very they're they're the 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 French and most of the rest of Europe is obsessed with tight painting, small brush strokes, and even using rabbit hair brushes after the fact mm-hmm. to hide the furrows of their brushes. Mm-hmm. Right? They're trying to they're trying to hide it all. But then. Um, there's the the Louvre opens up a Spanish wing of art that has a lot of paintings by Velazquez and Ribera and um, other Spanish masters, Sorboran, and they become obsessed. And there's a painter, two painters, um, who really become obsessed with it, Leon Bonin and Carolus Duran. And Duran and Bonin both teach Eakins, um, Duran teaches Sargent, um, and his theory is that if you want to paint like these Spaniards, when you start a painting, the smallest brush you use is two inches. Hmm. And, and he invents and influences the, the, the French um, world with this idea of you should do values painting. You should just work with you, – you, you don't draw – Build up color areas with these large brushes, and then narrow it down over time with smaller brushes. As you get and, and start drawing with the brushes, you get closer. That's not exactly what Soroya did. His generation, though, were much more comfortable doing oil studies and sketches than they were doing pencil sketches. They had to do both in school, mm-hmm. but. So, and his Soroya was a native oil painter. He wasn't most French artists were native graphite or charcoal artists. yeah who were then taught to paint after they mas- mastered graphite and and charcoal charcoal versions, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Soroya mastered oil painting first,
0: but he he that's, clearly that's, that's knew how to draw, things. though. I mean, he might not have drew yeah. with dry media, but he clearly knew how to draw.
1: I mean, he did. I mean, it's interesting if you were, I mean, we built so much of our dogmas to how we train artists to say that um, it's like, it's that line from Eng who said, you know, put up a sign for drawing and you'll you'll produce painters, right? You'll, yeah. You've got to learn how to draw first. And we drill that into people's minds, almost to the point that we say that if you learn to paint with oil first, and then learn to draw it may mess you up. And Sorolla wasn't learning just how to do oil. He was learning how to draw all along. He was a remarkable sketcher, too, and he was very good at drawing. But his native element was oil, along Mm. with most Spanish artists. That was their native element. If you went to the French Academy, I don't want to bang on too much about this, but let's say you were submitting a work for your graduation project um at the French Academy they would kind of they would give you and your classmates a subject and you would submit um a premier pense a first sketch which is almost like a thumbnail sketch of what the thing very sketchy of what the subject could look like and then you would do a more detailed sketch that would get an approval then you would do breakout studies of individual moments within the work And then you would do one final um, black and white study. And then you would do a color study. Oh, that's tedious. And then you would do the final work. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That and those would all be approved. In Spain, you would do a oil sketch, more detailed oil sketch, more detailed oil sketch, final painting in oil really so it, it there were there were different times where you know maybe they would require you to do a drawing but for the most part you would be working in oil on the painting all the way through artists as part of their process would do drawing but they didn't have to usually submit the drawing as part of their work so there, there's a exhibition in Valencia that I saw um last November it was um, it, it had over 500 drawings by Soroya mm-hmm. and there are 5,000 that have been kept at the uh, at his, the Soroya Museum in Madrid that were he, he almost never showed. And there were a number of of sketches of this painting that he did, but they were large and they were not very detailed. So you'd see gestures of the arms. you'd see kind of like the the underlying, anatomy of the of the oxen and how their heads were turned on their necks and how they were connected to the the line all the way to the boat yeah you wouldn't see everything in great detail like you would see in a french painting he just didn't do those hmm they were very sketchy
0: so okay so i have a question for you well more of a comment followed by a question um about process So I'm trying to imagine how I would do a painting like this. First of all, it would be incredibly intimidating. But um, I assume he's using photography on some level. Um, Is is that correct? I don't know on this piece. You don't know. Um,
1: I do. I do know that he did use photography sometimes. Well, there's something that go. Go ahead. And well,
0: your okay, so I would I would do what you described earlier, and I would set up all the individual pieces. The man holding the, I guess that's a yoke or something. Is that what he's holding? A log or whatever? Uh, it, it could be. It could be a support for. It could also be where
1: they um, they put it behind the boat, so it doesn't go back
0: into oh, the ocean. Okay. Well, that guy. Could be that too. I'm not sure. Yeah, I do a I do a study of him. And then i do mm-hmm. a study i would stu- several studies at least of the oxen and then mm-hmm. studies of the boats and then um and then the tricky part <laughs> would be the lighting like ha- because the, everything affects everything else and this is where i would get stuck without the use of photography is how to get that sail is contributing to the lighting on everything in front of it
1: yeah and, yeah. um,
0: and that sail has a very specific shape. Yes. Um, and so that's where it would hang me up. It would be incredibly difficult, which is one of the reasons I look at his paintings and I'm just like, like my mind is blown that in a hundred years ago, he pulled something like this off.
1: I think that may be part of the reason why he would take the canvases out on the beach is I think that they were often a place where he would capture notes and uh, on 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 the on the lighting and color, and he would move fast. I mean, he wouldn't he wouldn't spend eight hours out there painting on it. He would do a, a couple hours, um, and get in. A, I mean, he wouldn't finish the painting, but he'd pull it out there, and I think he would get a lot of the information he needed in that period of time. I think that's one of the things that was useful to him is seeing how light would work on subjects. So yeah I know that he posed these figures all together at one point. What I don't know is the order of operations. Did he do all the all the things separately and then bring them all together, pull out the big canvas, grab quick notes on where the highlights should be and where the dark areas should be in the penumbra and all of that stuff and then say okay, I got enough information that now I can go back and work up the rest of it, right? Yeah. i don't know it's it's a good question because the light will be changing he did if you look at his oil studies he did these small cigar box studies like cigar cigar box tops mm-hmm. were really useful because you could just they were like cheap cardboard and almost everybody used them to do quick oil studies on mm-hmm. um, and there he's got tens of thousands of them. and he had i can't even tell you how many sales i've seen him do or how many just studies water he would do really and 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 he would just do um three or five color studies of a sail, five three three or five study colors of a of a of a pool of water or of a tide and you could tell that you know he's getting information that he's probably using later in the studio when he's tidying this up right Mm
0: mm-hmm so I don't know. Can, it's an interesting question. It is, you know, and I'm even looking at see this this section here. You can, can you see my cursor? Yeah. Okay, so this is uh, I'm I, I don't so know anything about sailing, that's the mast. Yeah. And it. That's the mast that's being bent by. Right, by, the, by the light on the. Exactly by the bent sail, and then he's got, got this. Uh, this light that's bouncing around in here that's really warm and then he's got the 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 shadows that are cooled by the blue sky and the warm oh, yeah. sun coming through the warm sail fabric like i just can't imagine how he could just improvise that um you know i don't i i don't think he's improvising
1: it's almost like i don't know i mean you've done enough portraits yeah that that you know you know, you get you get a lot of information very quickly by looking at somebody, right? W- when you're doing work, right and And I think that what was unusual about Soroya in his time and why other artists, because the, the salon which this painting won big in, the reason why he got such a big win from it, was because they realized how much information he was putting into a painting that was a common subject to them, right? He was taking something that was somewhat ordinary, animals, oxen, um, peasants, essentially, hard laborers, and applying these over-the-top skills that you would see in a sergeant painting of ruffled silk on a on a woman, right?
0: Right, of a woman standing still or sitting yeah. still in a chair yeah, and, and
1: this is this is where he astonished people with this ability right and, I, I, and he got it from going out and being on the beach over and over again and and you know some of this information you could get from photography right he was this is not a painting that was done by an italian traditional classicist this is a partially out of frame sail with a dynamic angle coming towards you like a ph- photographer would have done it it's it's the composition is photography, right? Right. This is how the naked eye sees something, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't but the the cameras of his age, even though they were getting better, was not picking up the cool shadows.
0: Oh, of course not.
1: More <laughs> right. It's not picking up all of that um that juicy, turgid water that is that is swirling around the animals, right? That is the oil study part. That's the him working um, in, 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 from oil studies. And then the fact that everything looks like it's got solid bones and you can see where the shoulders and necks connect and that where the depth of the water from where his knees are and where the oxen are and the boat. Like, you the, that comes from all his anatomical studies as a student, right? You see, mm-hmm. so they knew that they were up against somebody who had the skills of a traditional history painter, but who was, who had a lip, who was applying it to an unusual subject for them. And who also had this photographic eye that was, I don't know if they would have called it a photographic eye, but to me, that's obviously what it is when I look at. it.
0: But was that eye influenced by his exposure to photography or? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. maybe we can talk about that a little bit um, because this, yeah, so to, to, to me, let's go it's, to the next image. okay. I mean, it's, a woman. it's the woman laying down. All right, let's zoom in on that one. This is the one? Yeah, and then don't don't lose your thought. Okay, to me, the 19th century was like light years ahead of the previous century. Um, and it was the first century, as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm not the historian here, so correct me if I'm wrong. The first century where people are just painting their lives around them, just the everyday world around them um hmm. and to me it seems like that's because that was the first time that they could capture something something fleeting instead hmm. of instead of like you know prior to that it seemed like artists were more like directors where they almost had to create their own narratives because they couldn't capture something that was happening before them um and so they would create their own narratives from memory or from from history or from scripture or whatever and they would kind of uh rebuild that thing almost like a director making a play um or directing hmm. a play but then in the 19th century it's like all of a sudden all of a sudden we have a glimpse into what it was like to be there with them all of a sudden there's homeless people sitting against buildings and people in like the painting we just saw people fishing and and um pulling oxen or you know just random everyday life experiences and to me that seems like that only could have happened because of the camera i think there is something to that there are two
1: things that i want to break down and your there's an answer to that that has two categories one is the ability to capture fleeting everyday things right which is I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, uh, Jean-Louis Maisonnier. Maisonnier mm-hmm. was a this remarkable French artist who everybody thought his ability to do detail in multi multi-figural scenes. He was famous for doing scenes of Napoleon charging with his horses. And you'd see every blade of grass and you'd see every muscle in the horse. He built a railway in his own property and would have horses run alongside it before there was photography. And he would try and sketch the horse as he's That's in the train going alongside it, right? Yeah. And then and then he then when um um oh, what's his name? Um MayaBridge came out with his images that he would set up like 20 cameras in a row and have a horse run by and they'd each click, and then you'd get that that did allow them to capture everyday things because now artists were reproducing in in magazines studies of movement that they couldn't capture with the eye. Yeah, right? and it's a trip Just when you look back ancient.
0: at these old old paintings of dogs or horses and they look like they're flying through the air instead of naturally. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And they probably yeah, and because, to them
0: it probably looked normal.
1: To them it looked normal. To yeah. them it looked normal. So that was a revolutionary thing that changed with photography. The thing that that is probably um, just if not more important is the mentality of what could and should be painted so in the in the 17th century there was a french thinker who was very influential named andre felibien and he wrote down what everybody knew um but we have it as a rule he called it the hierarchy of art and he said the most important and best artists the ones who are educated do allegorical historical and mythological multi scenes these are the right. things that are, are subjects that are worthy of the greatest artist. And that artist has to be literate. Most people weren't literate. Um, they have to be educated in history. And 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 the subjects are moralizing. They teach you good values. Mm-hmm. Then below that is um, royal portraiture and religious portraiture. And below that is... Um, is, is every is genre scenes of everyday life, and then below that is animal life, and then below that is still life, and then below that is landscape, and then below that is decorative art like painting walls, right? And there was kind of a pay scale based on that, right? And school was based on treating you to be the first one. So why would you, if you were trying to be the greatest artist in the earth, paint a street urchin, right? Why would you paint homeless people? It was below you to do that. And it wasn't necessarily moralizing. But in the 19th century, that changed. And it was people like, um, not just Manet, but people like Jules Breton and Jean-Francois Millet who were painting peasants that are painting everyday subjects and starting to say that we can do everyday life now because the people who were buying the artwork changed from being royal figures as the, as the 19th century went on, the, the Western world became increasingly democratic. And so the people who were buying them and putting them over their fireplace mantles are not kings and queens anymore. They are business people who want to remember what their village looked like, or they want, they, they, they want more common subjects. They don't want a mythological subject that they don't quite understand themselves as a buyer, right? That's part of it. That's a big part of it. So it's both. Why did they start doing more everyday subjects? It was, it was, um, that, uh, now they could actually see it, right. As part of it because of the technology and photography and that became fascinating to them. And it was also that their audience changed and the subjects changed along with it.
0: So what may- motivated, okay. So you're saying, uh, maybe, uh, a- uh, different distribution of wealth
1: yeah that's I mean, part of it
0: okay so that's part of what motivated the change But you know okay my personal experience so I have a client which you're aware of that mm-hmm. I I believe uh, you know they have a certain look that they like to commission artists and I personally know that this look is influenced by what artists have already established? It's not, it's not like they have their own. T- this client has its own taste. It's that the artists have established their taste for them, and yes. now, and now they, and they, they kind of own that now as their own taste, and now they're telling other artists to do what the previous artists had established, right? So yes. it's almost like a chicken or the egg thing. It's like, so did some guy, some artist with a camera go go photograph um a gypsy or something and then paint it and then change the taste of the public that now had the money or the taste of the public change which allowed the artist more freedom to paint the gypsy or homeless okay person, so you know?
1: so this this idea is essential to this painting i'm showing you in okay. the next
0: one okay
1: because soroya He's a young man. He's only about 19 years old, and he gets accepted to the Exposición Nacional. So let me just give you a little background structurally. So he's an orphan, and he starts going at the age of nine years old to this local trade school where he's being taught how to make street signs and to hand color photographs. Really? And it's a night school, so he's working at by day as a locksmith with his uncle who's a boat locksmith so he's out working on boats all day as a nine-year-old and then at night he's going to school taking classes on how to be a trade painter and the people he's taking the classes from during the day those teachers are teaching at the royal academy in valencia and one of the teachers says man this kid's got talent um go to your uncle and tell him we'll pay for your schooling and give you a job if he will give you up as a locksmith apprentice. So Soroya then goes to school as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 11-year-old about, to the academy. You gotta be kidding me, 11? And and, uh, and he starts taking classes and, his, his, and a photographer, becomes his father-in-law because he marries the daughter hires him to colorize and take photographs with him he's one of the he's a he's a famous uh um his name's lopez and he's a famous um uh, uh a photographer in spain so soroya while he's going through school his education is being financed by his work in photography mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and He's got great teachers, and he works his way up to submit to the the national contest, which is called the Exposición Nacional, which takes place in Madrid. Now, he's from Valencia. He's he's a backwater provincial, and he does a couple of minor works the first time he does it, and then he goes up and studies Velazquez. He copies Velazquez's paintings while he's in, in Madrid, and then he submits the next year, and he does a more ambitious painting. And that painting wins him a place to study in Rome at what's called the Royal Academy in Rome. And you probably know this, but the French had this thing called the Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize, And only the best artists went there. It was, it, if there were 100 students at the, at the Academy in, in, or 500 students at the um, school in, in Paris, five of them got to go to Rome. Soroy was one of those mm. people who got to go and they all have to do the same exercises. And he has to submit them to the, the uh, his patrons who are paying for the trip, his scholarship. And these are official judges, right? This is the first painting he sends back
0: as a, as a student in Rome. Wait, wait. So how old is he now? Like, um, I think he's 18. Freaking night. They hate it.
1: They absolutely (laughs) hate it. Really? Yeah. And the reason they hate it is they say she looks too natural and real.
0: It's an, an immoral painting. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I could see why they would say that in that period of time. So why do you say that? Well, let's be specific. Well, because she's not an idealized figure. She's not that and, and- like that plump, um, you know, kind of fake. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it without sounding inappropriate.
1: I, well, don't. I mean, I'll be. I'll be very. I'll be very okay. technical about it. So, so I've okay. seen about fifty of these paintings that were done by his classmates, and they have the same um, tripod with the figures. They have the same tambourine on the left. They have the same yellow wall. They have the same garland of flowers. They have the same pillow. The same bed. Everything, right? But every one of them has breasts that don't um, that, that defy gravity.
0: Don't sag. Yeah.
1: Right? <laughs> and I
0: was just and, gonna and, say that, and, yeah.
1: And, and and he paints exactly what he sees, right? And they hate it. They absolutely hate it. And Soroya um, ends up um, painting something else for them that's more idealized. But it goes to this idea of Soroya immediately starts having problems with what is people that are twenty and thirty years older than him who are judging these contests, who come from an earlier generation of idealizing the human, idealizing everything, right? And he comes from a generation where he's looking at the things that are coming through Paris, and he's seeing them as black and white images. And he's also dealing with a generation of artists who are trying to push the limit in brushwork and being um, virtuosic in showing their skills. And so, I mean, I look at this and I think, And some of my favorite moments in this piece is the smoke coming off of that tripod. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that is, he's really, it's showing how it blends into that back wall. And, and, and also the, 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 the figures in the tripod to me are even more interesting than her figures in some way. The painting's not in the best condition, but then that really beautiful long line from her toe all the way up to her belly button Right. And all the temperature changes that happen on her leg mm-hmm.
0: in between it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. He's, his classmates aren't doing those same kinds of really subtle temperature changes and observations of, they're, they're all getting outer lines, but they're not doing a lot of interior work in figures. And that's where they're fudging it with idealization. And, and he's trying to get these, these more subtle, Things to happen,
0: and he's doing it with. I mean, that's what I see. What do you see? You're an art. You're an artist. Um. Uh, no. Every. I. I can't really add to that. One thing I do notice, though, because. Well, the first thing I thought about is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it, this isn't a genre painting, right? On, on one hand, no. on one hand, he's got this uh, very naturalistic approach, which which was obviously not typical of the time. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's modern for his time. But in another sense, it's not because it's a figure reclining, right? It, it, yeah. It's no, it's nowhere near as modern as his other paintings that will come where it's figures in motion and di- dynamic compositions of everyday life. So that's a first yeah. thought that because came
1: it's to me.
0: Right? It's, 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 yeah. a, because it's an exercise. Right, it's an exercise That you typically don't see in schools today i mean it's like because it's a complete painting it's not a figure floating in the middle of a canvas which is really impressive but of course i noticed the same thing and the reason i'm so worried about being inappropriate is because the first thought i'll just say the first thought that came to mind is she doesn't have fake torpedo boobs right that's what i was gonna say and i'm like i don't know
1: that's what they look like in his classmates work and that's what was expected of him because it was meant to not because that means that she's not sexualized in the minds of those people at the time, right?
0: Wait, so if she's they, not sexualized. So you're saying that the, the no, fake breast sexualized? You,
1: no, fake. The fake is non-sexualized. Oh, that's that's what I thought. Okay, okay, right. Allegorical figure, and now she's a real person. So, so now she she she's from, naked.
0: From before, she was she, a symbol of a woman, and now she's so actually a naked woman. So yeah. it went from symbolism to pornography. That's right.
1: Yeah. That's right. So let's go to the next one, which is the black and white. That's large. This was so Come he studied second. for Rome for in through for three years roughly, and he does. Um, he, he he he's expected, um, to do a painting, and this is not. This is not in high resolution, and there are reasons for it that I'll explain. Um, he's expected to do a masterpiece that is submitted to the national contest. And, um, and 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 uh, it's it's his it's like his graduation project from the Royal Academy in in Rome, and everybody's expecting it to be a big hit. Um, except there is there's jealousy of Sorolla. Remember, he's from Valencia. Most of his classmates are from Madrid, and the judges are all from Madrid. And this piece, which is called the Burial of Christ, it's got. The figures of John, the beloved on the right, consoling Mary, the mother of Christ. And then it's got the disciples carrying Christ on a stretcher over rough, rough ground. And it was roughly. Um, um, it was roughly 200 inches high. Holy crud. And. um and um, uh, and and about twice as long, right? So it's about 400 inches wide.
0: 200. So inches how many high. feet is
1: that? It's it's uh, so 200
0: inches high is gonna is gonna be like 16 plus feet.
1: Yeah, so it's roughly about 32 feet long, right? And and it gets it gets canned at the um, at the uh, um, uh, um, at, at, at the awards ceremony. He, they, they get he gets criticized for saying this isn't Christ the burial of Christ. This is Christ on his way to the burial. So it's it's really oh, pedantic, yeah, it, pedantic, really stupid things that that you would imagine. And Sorolla rips up
0: and destroys the canvas. Oh, that's why you um, have black and only the black and white. Yeah,
1: yeah, and we. I just went to an ex- exhibit in in uh, Madrid at the Museo Sorolla, where they have. Part of the Christ figure, parts of the heads, and part of the ground that they found in his attic that were in strips.
0: No, right. So they were
1: able to piece back a few images of it, and we've got a photograph of him working on it, sitting in front of it um, uh, as a as a young student. But he basically says at this point, you know, f you guys, I'm not going to do this academic art anymore. I'm done with it. Right. I'm done trying to do history paintings or paintings that are going to try and please people in your in your program i'm going to paint things that i like and he he doesn't this painting marks the end of him trying to do the academic thing
0: you're referring to academic uh, as subject matter Uh, in in subject uh, matter
1: i think academic meaning what the trying to play the academy's game so in spain it was a lot like it was in france you'd go to school you'd go through the program and you'd paint the subjects in the way you wanted you would idealize your women you do the subjects that were grand um historical um, allegorical or religious scenes in the way you think you're going to please the judges and then if you win the contest, you get a teaching position, you get government contracts to do paintings, and your life is made from there on out, right? That's what I mean by academic, that you're within the system, you're playing towards the academy that was controlling that system. And at this point, he says, I'm not going to try and play to the jo- I'm not going to submit works to your contest right now. I'm not going to try and get a teaching position with you. I'm going to go do my own thing. And he moves to Italy, and he starts doing scenes of everyday life in peasants. And it's a really experimental period. He starts messing around with, and I, I, I could show you dozens of these, everything from he does some religious scenes. He does a lot of his own family life. He does that throughout his entire life. He does really touching scenes of, of his wife and children. But he, he kind of does these, these scenes that are good for Italian peasants uh, that are good for magazines at the time. But then he comes back in the 1890s with a whole new approach to painting and subjects that put him back on the map. That's the painting of the figures in the boat that that I want you to go to next, where it's the the two men crouching over the figure that is called... and they it's called y dicen que el pescado es caro in spanish in english it's and they still say fish are expensive okay so that painting
0: figures on the spot. not this one
1: next one the one to the right of it the one to the right of the one you just picked there you are that one
0: yeah oh my gosh so i want to i want to before you talk about this that that's really interesting to me because obviously I, I'm i of the generation that's been around for quite a while where you're, it's almost looked, it's frowned upon to be part of a of this uh, sort of dogmatic approach to art where you have to paint certain things to fit in, right? I mean, that doesn't even exist anymore, right? Um, no, no, it doesn't. But it reminds me of what I mean, what we still have that today, like with the sciences and medicine, where it's like if you think outside the box, you don't get funded. And and I can't even imagine growing up at a time where that's that way with art. Like because we're so we're such selfish brats yeah. today, where we just we paint whatever we want. I
1: I think and I don't know if it's always good. I think you probably see this as a teacher, where Somebody will say to you, look, I just want to be creative, right? I wanna I wanna yeah. I wanna do this my way. And and you as a teacher probably wanna to say to them, Look, I I don't <clears throat> I don't care if you eventually do it your own way, just do it accurately first. And once you've been able to do this accurately, and you can show me you know perspective or anatomy or the difference between like um, Umbra, penumbra, and like you can like pull through all these. Once you show me that you can do an egg with all of its shades, then you can mess around with it, right? It's, it's almost like in music, um, I, don't, I think that most music teachers don't care if you end up becoming Bach or David Bowie. What they care about is that you know the scales, right? And that's kind of the legacy of our generation, I think, in most arts and sciences. But in art,
0: we don't always teach the scales anymore. Well, even in music, I mean, I that mean, analogy almost falls apart because even music is it doesn't teach scales anymore on some level. But we got I
1: mean, in, in, Sor- in, in. In Soroya's day, it was it was if I had to come up with a, an analogy, it would be here's a saxophone. You're only you gotta learn how to play the saxophone, and we're gonna teach you a very high level of playing the saxophone, but you can't play your own music. Well, that's the right? difference between the other it. analogy,
0: is because I agree with that period of time that the tools are necessary. But where where it's different today, and at least in how I teach, and I think how most teach today, that at least have a have share in my philosophy, and that is that we're trying to say, get the tools so you can paint whatever you want. They're saying, get the tools so you can paint what we want you to paint.
1: Yes, that is a good, that's, that is a distinction. And the distinction is, um, you know, we, we know what's, and, and to be, to be honest about why they were right in some ways is that they had the money. So they were commissioning, they were basically commissioning really high-end wallpaper for hundreds and thousands of government offices hmm. and buildings. And so I mean if you wanted to make a really good living, you'd play their game because you could do these enormous building projects. You could you could be doing the, you know, the equivalent of the US Capitol as Soroya. And you could be doing ceilings that were, you know, hundreds of, of thousands of square feet and be paid really well to do it if you played their game. Right. Yeah. And so and so, in a way, he was cutting himself off from making a good living. Yeah, so what and do you think gave him the was, courage? What do you think gave him the courage to break the mold? When he talks about it, he talks about how he didn't feel like it was a game he could win because he was an outsider. He oh. was a, a Valencian um, provincial, and he could never really win against those biggies. And so he, was, he saw the future being commercial sales in France. And maybe even in his own town, and so he. But but there's a period that I don't really quite know why he lands on this, but it produces some of my favorite pieces, which are pieces that he that are called now social paintings, social history paintings. They're moralizing paintings, and I think that this is where you see a skill set in Soroya that when you see his very impressionistic, very um, uh, virtuosic brushstrokes. This is the underlying figurative and structural work in this painting that exists in those later paintings. So when you saw the oxen, and when you see some of his really brushy, um, vibrant paintings, you don't always see the figurative underlying, almost drawn work that he d- that he's capable of underneath. Mm-hmm. And 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 so painters want to skip to his very impressionistic brushy, virtuosic, um, um, huge brushstroke paintings, but they don't know how to do this work that we see in this painting. Yeah. It's in between. So Sorolla does for about five, ten years, these paintings that capture the plight of everyday Spaniards. And um, he kind of uses his skills as a trained painter in the academy in ways that are surprising. So this painting is called and they still say fish is expensive. And and what it is is here are two experienced tuna fishermen who are in their small boat off the coast of Valencia. And in Valencia, they would get boats lined up like this. So imagine the boats are on either side and then they would get imagine my hand still there they would they would drive the fish in between this line of the boats. Mhm. And people would stand on the edge of the boat with this large hook-like device, right? And they would grab the fish as they swam by and
0: throw them into what? the hole of the boat. Wait, aren't tuna like a thousand pounds or something? No, Mediterranean tuna. They're not as big. Oh, you can okay. see some
1: of the tuna that are in the back of this boat now. And it wasn't always tuna, but it was, it was mostly tuna. Okay. And this young, inexperienced boy... He gets hooked because he's not standing in the right place. Oof. So it hooks him right where Christ is wounded with the spear wound. You think and that was intentional? Mast, it was by by, uh, by Soroy, it was. So that mast that comes down to the bottom of the boat, it's that bar on the left-hand side. Yeah, That looks like they're at the base of the cross. Right? Really? So you've got these three <laughs> figures that are... And you can see the motion... Of the water still going back and forth with that lantern that's swinging. Yeah, and it's, it's like and the boats naked. tilted. So he takes this painting to Madrid and it wins the top prize. It's the first, it's one of the first ones of his that really starts getting recognition because he's, he's showing people in the wealthy capital the plight of fishermen on the coast who are providing their. These these the, the the Madrid population, with these fish, and he's equating it with Christ dying, and not and them not caring about it, right? This boy is the Christ figure who's been wounded in his side at the base of the cross, which was really at you know on the in the inside of this boat. Did and, he write about and, this?
0: Uh, his feelings on this.
1: Is, yeah and his uh, his friend named um Vlasco who is an author writes an entire novel called um the Mayflower which becomes a Hollywood movie at the time it's about the plight of these fishermen on the coast of Valencia hmm. so if you look up the Mayflower it's a novel by Vlasco Ibanez, and then it's uh, velasco Ibanez, and then it's it becomes a movie I forget I think John did John Houston direct it I'm not sure I have to look hmm. that up Anyway, so these paintings—if you—it's—it's it's not as big of a painting as the
0: other ones. It's—it's it's big, but it's not huge. So I'm trying to get in his head here. So he rejected the academy's expectations to paint certain subjects the way they wanted yes. them painted, but that subject yes. happened to be, in at least in his case, biblical subjects, um, obviously relating to mm-hmm. Christ, and he rejected being part of that whole game that they played. Mm-hmm. but it wasn't and so it sounds like it's not because he rejected the subject it's the, it's like he rejected playing painting that subject under their rules because yes, he clearly was christian he clearly believed yeah 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 at, you yeah. know in those same and, things and, and, and valued he, those things
1: and this is so radically different it's smaller than the other canvases that he's competing against yeah it's like i mean you think about this one is this one is roughly 65 inches high by by 90 inches wide
0: <laughs> he, so it's still big it's big right yeah but
1: but it's but the other one was 32 feet long and, and right? so
0: how did he paint and not to get off topic but I meant to ask this a while back and I didn't get a chance when he painted that uh what did you say it was um 16 feet high 32 feet long mm-hmm. just from a pure <laughs> purely, uh, I can't think of the word, but just, just. I mean, I'm trying to imagine how I would have gotten that painting done and how I would have even found a space to paint something like that. And not to, I mean, not to mention how I would have transported it, framed it, and got it seen by those powers that be Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight on that? How that kind of thing worked back then? Well, there
1: was there. It was very common to paint those kinds of big paintings in the 19th century in Rome and have them shipped all over. So they would be you. You'd have about a year to paint it, and it would have to be dry. And then you could you'd unstretch it, roll it up, and send it. Okay. Right, and then it would then it would be restretched, and sometimes you'd retouch it when you did it. So just on a logistical level, that was part of it. It it's would still often a 16 six foot months. roll. Yeah, yeah. And it would and and uh, it was they had their ways of that was a fairly common thing. I mean, it would just mm. go on a train car, right? okay. boat,
0: okay. boat, wow. train
1: car. Man. And then you'd um, um, when it came to the amount of time, he'd, he he I don't know specifically on that piece, how long it would take him, but it would be unusual if it took more than six months for him to paint it. Oh, my God. And and they would they were they were fast. I mean, they would. They would um, block in um the the main sections work very fast they were working with with huge brushes loaded with lots of paint i mean you gotta you gotta know that Soroyas teacher in rome pradia who we can talk about another time was an amazing painter he's really worth talking about these guys were trained as stage painters working on opera and theater um scenery and so these guys are doing like like three opera stages in a, in like a week or two, right? I mean, they're painting architecture, landscape, they're blocking it all in really fast, right? So, so with, with essentially house paint at that time, right? Yeah. And Roy is using finer paints and he's, he's got, he's learned how to work fast. A lot of these artists know how to work fast. This painting, I mean, the level of, of care that he took with this painting was extraordinary. And I think it shows compared to that, that bigger one. Yeah. It's it's more refined. You can see a lot of, you can see that he's worked very hard on getting everything right in the perspective. And he's made some very extreme decisions in how you're pulled into the, the, the the background of that depth, the lines that lead back to it. And there are a lot of ways where this painting could go wrong. Right. I mean, the way that they're sitting the way that that boy is is leaning down on the ground the way the light is coming from above through that hole in the boat mm-hmm. that's going down in the space where they are but he's also used an extremely restricted palette
0: yeah i was noticing that yeah it's very very it, monochroma- almost monochromatic it is
1: and mm. and that is something that he does during this period and it has its benefits i mean First of all, they would have seen this as Spaniards and thought of Velasquez and some of those golden age artists that really use restricted palettes, but also look at how the, how effective that just the red on the boy's noses and that highlight.
0: Well, on and the legs. yellow shirt, it just provides and, so much oh, interest yeah. against all the, all the brown. I mean, there's the really only three colors, brown, yellow, yellow, and, and it's green. Yeah.
1: Look at the look, and that makes the red much more effective. Look at the ear, the light coming through the back of the old man's ear. Yeah, right he's here. Down. I mean, that is just, and it's 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 moments like that where he is, he's really um, um, restricting the palette, which allows him to show off little moments like that, right? But it's also not what we know him for. He he gains the respect of the academy doing these. He comes back. But he's not painting these for any government buyer. These get bought out, these history paintings, by private clients, um, for the most part. This painting doesn't. This painting ends up, I think, in the National Collection eventually. But for the most part, he's now not working to be patronized by the government. He's working to win private clients. And the painting sizes that he starts making are smaller and smaller. They're the kinds of things that should be shown, that he expects to be shown in people's homes. And that's where, go to the portrait he painted. Um, This is where his career turns into becoming a portrait painter, which is something you know something about. Mm -hmm. This is his, one of his, he admires this man very much. It's the painter Aureliano Beruete, who's who's a landscape painter and has been a mentor to Sorolla. And I don't know if you can zoom in on his face, but um this gives you an idea of for years during this period, the eighteen nineties to the nineteen hundreds, Soroya makes his money mostly doing portraits. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And and he is as good, I believe, as the best that are out there at the time.
0: He's oh, doing I agree. His,
1: his competitors are Zorn, Soroya, Baldini, um, uh, 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 a, a lot of the the people who are working in Paris. He's he's doing Pari- He's working in Paris. He's working in New York. He's working in in Madrid. He's he's um, doing portraits of the jet set class all around. And this style is very much an international style of the time. Yeah. Right. This is not. This doesn't look like anything else we've seen him do really right but it's for a period of about 20 years
0: this is maybe 80 percent of his income i didn't know that really 20 years yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. it really looks like yeah it doesn't it's not much different than like sergeant or zorn or i mean it's it's definitely in that same family it is
1: it is and he i don't I, you see enough of his work. He has a lot of diversity in his portrait work. This one is the one that I chose because it looks the most like that international style. Because I wanted people to know that he could play at that level, right? He could play at the level of Sergeant and Zorn and was considered a peer by them.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine hanging out with those three? Jeez. Oh, uh,
1: unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, a, unbelievable
0: yeah and they would have been together at times
1: yeah yeah and and they, they knew each other and, and admired one another and and i think that when you when you think that soroya grew up doing portrait photography and touching up photographs with color for his now father in law soroya's portraits and 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 then he's doing all these academic paintings and studies you get a sense of 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 really what he's how how of a total artist he is
0: yeah but then let's jump to the landscape yeah he can just do whatever he wants it's like he could be anybody he wants to be then he's doing a
1: landscape like this so one thing that's interesting to know about Soroy is that he he um he gets these um he he kind of says, "I'm done with the academy." and then he starts doing all these small studies and he's experimenting with all of these smaller paintings. and then he does a period of 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 these social history paintings we call them that are of the fishermen. there are there of, of of orphans, there're of women who have been um, um, uh, imprisoned. they're. There are a lot of things that he takes on, and that that gives him the respect of the academy and turns him into a portrait artist, largely. I mean, he, gets, he starts doing portraiture, and then he decides that he wants to do a one-man show. And he gets together 400-plus paintings that are like this landscape. They're all full of light. They're full of color. They're very impressionistic. And he takes the show on the road first to Paris, and he rents a space at the same time that the Paris Salon is going on, and he sells about 200 paintings out of his 400-plus painting show, and Monet comes and calls him our greatest painter of light, and he gets, he gets all of French society excited about what he's doing, and then he takes that show to Berlin, and now he's got, I don't know, he's got, uh, I think he's down to, he, all his best paintings were sold in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. And then he sells another hundred in Berlin,
0: and then he takes the show to London. So he's taking H- this show himself. He's got no yeah. yeah he's yeah. got no representative or anything. He's how does he's doing it himself? How do people? I mean, how does that work exactly back then? How do people know he's arrived and he's got a truck full well, of paintings? You mean he's hired, so to
1: speak. I think he he he's got friends all around. I mean, he's he's connected to other artists and. And, he, and the critics write about him. You can look up newspaper accounts. And this is before movies and television and radio even. So in Paris, whenever the Paris Salon happened, there would be maybe um, two or 3,000 works in the Salon. Paris had a population of about one hundred and fifty to 200,000 people. And 1 million people would come to the Salon, right? I mean, almost 10 times the population of Paris would come to see the art show. So these shows were
0: bigger than a Hollywood, you know, blockbuster film.
1: Yeah. So everybody would come to town and Soroya knew that they would go to the salon and then they would walk down the street to see the three or four other artist shows that were going on at the same time. Right. So Soroya was showing up at the right time in the right place. And he's putting out considerable money to rent his own space. So that he can be seen by these crowds, foot traffic was a was just a big part of it, right? Like there was just foot traffic, and so he's showing, he's whining and dining people. He sells the best stuff in Paris, the next best stuff in Berlin, and then the people in in London totally don't like his work. They just it gets canned, really. And part of that is because. It's scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's about a hundred works out of his four hundred and fifty best works that are left. Oh. I mean, arguably, arguably, he should have not done that. He should have just said, "I'm going to go paint for a few more years and then hit London." Right? Mm. But he doesn't do that. He just like he's riding high, and he gets to London, and he writes about how miserable the, the British are and how they don't appreciate him, and how and how like they don't have taste. Well, who it's is just, a
0: British contemporary of of him? Who would you know? Been? Somebody who's very
1: close to him in in his work would be Munnings Sir Alfred Munnings. But I mean,
0: just a famous one would. I mean, what? When was Waterhouse in relation Alma to him? Alma
1: Tadema, Waterhouse, Layton. Um, um, pointer all of these guys were around
0: so and then so i mean did the british just not like what the french were doing in this impressionist i mean he's spanish clearly no they
1: they they loved it and and um they were just i think that he just didn't bring his best a game
0: that's it you really think that's it i think that was it oh
1: and i think that that uh his english was poor and the person who takes who who um um really um meets him there that changes his life entirely is a man named archer huntington Mm -hmm. so you've heard of the huntington museum Mm -hmm. in pasadena right i've never been there
0: but i've heard of it
1: this is this is his his cousin is archer huntington who was also a a baron who of sorry a robber baron he's american but he makes all his money in steel and rails and he goes to, and he's a he's a, a, a lover. He's an Hispanophile. He loves everything Spanish. And he has just opened up this place called the Hispanic Society of America. And he goes to Sorolla and he says, you know what I want to do? I want to do this entire room in the Hispanic Society of America um, about the history of Spain. I want it to be 30-plus monumental paintings that are all about... Going from the the first cave dwellers in Spain to the Phoenicians to the Romans to Isabel and Ferdinand and the Muslims to Columbus and then through throughout uh, all the major figures Velázquez to today I want to uh, to today and and Sorolla says "Uh, no I'm not going to do that he says I'm not good at doing historical paintings I don't give a a damn about the history part. I want to show Spain as it is today. So how about instead doing that, I go and do the regions of Spain, the 30 plus paintings on the regions of Spain as they are today, where I show the unique trades, people, dress, um, uh, landscape of every one of these regions. It's in keeping with you wanting to be a museum about Spain, but it's about spain as it is and archer says sure gives him a boatload of money and for the next 15 20 years he does the the vision of spain it's called and it's his it's his final masterwork. and and let's go to that painting of the women dancing this is one of my favorites from that
0: okay don't lose that thought because before you go into this i want to ask you something so we've okay. looked at three uh, the last three paintings we've looked at. I just wanted to get your opinion on my thought here. Okay. This looks to me like something Zorn might have done. This looks to me like yeah. something Sargent might have done, and this looks like something uh-huh. Monet might have done um to yeah. me and then and then you're pulling up this one to me yeah it's, before you do that, you know what before we go back to yeah, we'll go to go through it go for your question go ahead it's almost like. He's just working out. I, I don't know if he's working something out and in, 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 in evolving as an artist before he he shows all of his chops when he starts doing this sort of <laughs> stuff, or yeah. or if uh, if he's it's just mood, you know. Like I'm interested in this now. I'm interested in that. You know, I'm interested in this for this many years. I'm interested in I that. Mean, for I mean, what is he doing as know. he's I mean, moving like, from okay, place to place? So good. Go to the painting
1: of the the people in the boat that we looked at before the 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 and they st- not that one the, that one yeah okay wait, so wait, that was one? done not the one you were on before the 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 the, the boy who's been hooked okay. yeah yeah so that was done 1894 okay <laughs> okay then go to the one that you just clicked on of the people eating in the boat not
0: next that one. one. Left. one more over whoops don't want to do this that.
1: one That's right okay this one is is it was done four years after the one that we just looked at of the boy being
0: hooked okay
1: right it, you can see that there's a relationship between the two of them of there's somewhat of a restricted palette but there's more dynamism of lights and it's darks. getting more these there's getting a lot more,
0: more bold though it's getting there He's
1: getting bolder, right? Yeah. He's getting a lot bolder. This is this is one of my favorite paintings he ever did, and part of it is because it's a reversal of of in the academy where they teach you the most important figure in the brightest light, and and uh, and and uh, very basic shapes that you're supposed to group figures in, like triangles that are overlapping, kind of thing. And here you've got they're all in the dark, and the brightest part of the painting is at the very Back I of know the that's thing. so
0: interesting. Yeah. Well, I want to point out see, a big and, difference is here. He's he's doing what's so popular in in coming back in ateliers today, where all of his shadows are almost no paint at all. They're they're transparent right up to the core uh, shadow, and then and then he yeah. scumbles in the lights, and then he comes in. And uh, that's a yeah. very academic <clears throat> approach, and then he yes. comes into oh, here. Oh, and also
1: noticed how circular it is. Notice mm-hmm. how it's a it's like a circle that goes from all the figures. You could just follow it. And and all the figures are basically occupying the same plane. Right. Right? They're all within the same, like, two feet of one another. Right? And then you right. go to this painting, and it's like he's turned the – it's it's way more complicated, the relationship between the figures. And you were going to say about the shadows. What no, is the, well, I was going
0: to say that he's treating the lights and the shadows the same. He's putting in thick, m- bolder paint. You know he's not he's not yeah. he's not treating it with that classical approach where it's everything's transparent in the shadows i mean he is to some degree because mm. shadows are always transparent it's transparent paint when it's darker paint mm. but he's being more more direct in his uh yes. painting application than he is here which is very classical in a in its yeah. approach i don't know if that's the right terminology but um
1: no i think it is i think it is yeah I think that this is something that we recognize in the academy and this one was just shocking in how, I mean, this almost how, has like a um, Russian,
0: I mean, almost more like the Russians painted, just like cake pie it on is how on.
1: It is how the, mm. you, Repin would recognize this. Then go one more, which was done a year later, and which it's a smaller piece of that. The, you got that one that you're pointing to right there, which is radical in its own way, because it is like a photograph in that those figures are cut off, right? and and he's total look i mean they're walking out of the frame yeah he had um, to
0: have shot photos and, of this i mean he's got to be either he's directly I mean, influenced by his father-in-law's work
1: well i know that he took photos of this scene in particular Oh, okay but um but and but it's not nearly as posed and it, he does these things you ask mm-hmm. like this idea when we get back to the vision of spain of his evolution I don't, I mean, you may think of this as yourself as an artist, where you probably resent if somebody were to look at your body of work and be like, oh, and then this is Jeff's such and such period. Oh, and he clearly changed during this period, and he clearly changed during this period. It's almost like people want to come up with a really clear through line of how you evolved and developed. No, and that's not
0: exactly, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it looks like he's exploring his chops, like he's, He's figuring out how to do everything. This I can relate to because as you know, I went through that two and a half year sabbatical. I'm like, I'm tired of doing this all prima stuff. I feel like I've done it enough. I want to learn how to paint more traditionally, more classically. And you know, and now I'm kind of in a different stage where it's like, okay, now I've done both of those things. Now, how can I bring those two things together? What do I want to do with that now? And I don't know if I'm maybe being kind of presumptuous, to assume that he might think in the same way, but it's almost like he's like, hey, this is cool what Monet's doing. Oh, this is cool what Sargent's doing. This is cool what Zoran's doing. Like, I wanna play with all these different things and kind <laughs> of, and, and, and see what I like. I mean, I, I don't know if that's what's happening.
1: I, I know that he's a sponge. I know that he's a sponge. Yeah. I know mm. that he's always learning. He's always developing. He's always asking for catalogs from his friends when they're traveling to Paris. He's always interacting with artists. He's a very humble person. Yeah. And he's also, he also has the work ethic of, of an orphaned provincial, which yeah. is what he is, right? He's working, he, wor- he, he is constantly pumping out things. And, and I, I think that one of the things that's remarkable about him is that even when he's doing figurative work, it's almost as if he's got the, the speed of a plein air painter. Yeah. Because he's not, he's not spending forever on every painting. I think if that's one skill that I would like to see in action, is I'd like to see how quickly he goes through a scene like this. You, know, you, you can see the little moments where he's, he's adding a highlight to the feet of that man on the left bottom, right? And then he's pulling the same lead white across the boat. And he's and he, the edges. Those kinds of last minute details are beautiful. What I want to see is how he cuts in and builds up the piece in the beginning, so he goes fast. That's what I want to see the stages of. Right? I want to see. Okay. Did you start with those white? The the like the dark in the middle and on the side bottom, and then build up everything. How did you like? And this is the thing that I don't. He's. His granddaughter's the one who does most of the writing about him. And she's she's great, Blanca Ponsoroya, but she doesn't always talk about the craft, which is something that I'm trying to uncover now, is how did he make a piece from soup to nuts, right? How did he go in and build up something so he could move that quickly?
0: Well, let's do this. Um, uh, let's do another episode where you bring some of his his studies, his sketches, because I know you've shown me some of them, and I've, I've, I've yeah. obviously seen them in other books, but, and maybe we could sort of try and figure that out. Um, and, and obviously, yeah, we're, we're, obviously we're speculating. We, there's no way of really knowing. But I have some ideas, and I'd be fun to just look through those sketches and try and figure out how he'd put something like this together. I would
1: welcome it. I think that'd be a fan. I, I could learn a lot from it.
0: But I could learn a lot uh, here's from one that. thing, you know, it's interesting because you said earlier that he learned to obviously he was a good draftsman, but that he he drew. When he painted he wasn't really a uh, charcoal graphite artist he was a painter all through and through but the, that the was thing, his first instinct right yeah. the thing is about him though is that maybe he didn't work in dry media but the only way he could be that fast is if he's not constantly fixing mistakes i mean you look at this girl in the front that is a really hard yeah. figure to draw
1: oh my gosh and the the angle that he's got that's what i'm saying it's unbelievable it's really difficult to draw
0: but he does it in with such economy of stroke like it's um and and so the reason he's fast is because he's got to be an unbelievably precise draftsman and then this boat he's gotta be this boat here this this shape right here I drew a violin once, and I thought, man violins have got to be one of the hardest things to draw because when you draw them in perspective, all those curves on the violin are so bizarre they they distort mm. and foreshorten in such um, complex ways and a boat is simpler than that, but at the same time, in order to maintain this level of uh, looseness and freshness mm. and still and be done so quickly, he's just precise he's got to be just really really sharp with his drawing skills to be that he is he
1: you know he said something that that um i'll repeat when we do that that other episode
0: but it was a revelation to me
1: he was he he had in this um he had sketchbooks that he took with him wherever he went and also oils that he took with him wherever he went and there was a letter that he wrote to his wife he had taken photos of his three children And then he had drawn from those photos drawings that he took with him on his trip. And Hmm. he explained to her why he took the drawings and not the photos. And he said, because the drawings are more truth than the truth itself.
0: Even though he did the drawings from the lie, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and I think it's because, and I thought about that. I've thought about that a lot, that drawings are more true than the truth itself, which it's his line. And it's that idea that he's able to put information into a drawing that is more than just being accurate, right? But he used the photograph maybe, and this boat maybe, there's a moment for accuracy. There's There's a reason why that accuracy counts, right? But then on top of that, I think one of the things that we get caught up with and why we don't like photograph when we talk about art is because we think that it gets in the way of, of art, of, of, of meaning, of depth, of, 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 uh, of the artist's eye. And I think that what Saroy has done in some of these pieces is he's a good draftsman. The photographs may help with his, with his accuracy even though the photographs are a different size than the paintings he's not he's not tracing right not tracing at all but he he ultimately has enough command of an and and enough of an arsenal that you don't look at them and think oh he's cut off the figures there oh that 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 looks like it's a photograph it's it's not very obviously
0: not Right. right yeah
1: you don't you don't care because everything else is so virtuosic that you realize it's a choice that he's making it's not that the photograph has made the choice for him he chose that he chose everything
0: right this isn't an accidental cutting off of the figures right yeah he didn't he, he didn't he no. didn't do it because he's lazy. obviously not he doesn't do anything on accident obviously i don't think any well some are some well some painters do, but artists don't.
1: <laughs> no, no. Right? That's what makes so, you an
0: artist. You're in control of the whole process.
1: I mean, I, I know that we've, we've, we're probably running out of time, but if we go to that painting, the last one that, that he did maybe 20 years after this, and it's the, it's the women dancing, um, and we go to some of the detail shots,
0: well, I want to um, say yes. something about that statement though that he had said the more uh, a drawing the drawing is more truthful than the photo. Is that than, the,
1: than the truth itself? Than the truth, more itself. Than the truth itself.
0: So that I okay, the only way that makes sense to me if you interpret the word more in this way, because there's more there's two ways to interpret more. More suggests that um that the truth itself is less true mm-hmm. than the sketch or more suggest that it adds something to the truth Mm. you know what i mean like there's something above and beyond the truth so you know and i can get behind that because when i draw somebody like say i'm drawing one of my children i treasure the experience of drawing particularly from life but i think it would relate even from a photo because when you put your your creative decisions and emotional decisions behind the work. um, It brings something that goes above and beyond just being accurate. Right. Right. And it's, it's not like you capture their spirit. I'm not talking about all that. I'm just saying that it becomes something, it becomes something more than just an accurate portrayal of that kid. Now it's an accurate portrayal of the kid and it's a beautiful design, beautiful gesture, something that creates an emotion right. that adds to the personality and the life of that child and so on and so forth. So it's more like quantity, not more as in less, the opposite of less true. Yeah. I mean, that's you the know, way I would he, interpret it, but I don't know what he's saying, obviously. I,
1: it reminds me of something mm-hmm. that is from an artist that was about you know, 80 years <laughs> earlier than Soroya. Junagos Dominique Eng. Eng did a lot of really wonderful portraits and he was he used to say that what he would do is he would always schedule a portrait so that it would so they'd have to have lunch together. And he did it because he would paint for an hour or draw for an hour, and then he would watch them and talk to them while they ate. And then he would do it again. And he said he learned more from them not posing. And being conversational and eating, that he could that that them just posing wasn't enough information. He had to have the he had to have that other that other casual experience with them too. Who was this? I I um, missed it.
0: Ang oh um, in, 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 oh yeah. so that's been going and, on yeah. for a long time because lots of modern artists contemporary artists say that you know my approach is different because I found when I do a portrait commission, people don't they're not themselves around me if i schedule dinner or lunch hmm. or whatever so the mannerisms and everything are edited because they're with someone they're not comfortable with interesting um, so what i so found how do you get it? what i do is i interview the commissioner which is usually the parents or another family member and i say how do you perceive these people and interesting. um and i and i use their description in my you know, in, in, in my drawing and when I'm or painting and when I'm thinking about who this person is and trying to add to it.
1: See, that's where, we're, but we're getting, and we're getting to the same thing that Ang is getting to, that you're getting to, that yeah. you're describing with Soraya, which is that's more true than just the photograph. Right, right? there's there's and, more because, truth because in there. that. yeah. And I don't know, I don't know what you call that, but it's like we're missing a word in English. I'm sure the German or Japanese have yeah, a that's word the for this, <laughs> Yeah, the problem, yeah. I'm adding in, Adding in that information that we don't have, um, that that comes from all of the experience, all that you're able to absorb and add in as an artist. So let's zoom out of this scene, which he was done near the end of his life.
0: He Wait, which, is this the
1: one you want right here? So go to the the full version of this. Okay. And 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 I want you to notice something as we go to smaller versions of it. Okay. You look at it and you think it's all pretty much um, just as a casual observer. You think, wow, this is an explosion of color. The thing that he does very well that is hard to see when you're looking at it like this and to analyze because you're, I think, as 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 a person who is used to looking at movies, used to looking at television, used to looking at Instagram, you don't realize how controlled this image is. I mean, they're almost all wearing white dresses and all having color. And the hard thing you have to figure out is how do you, how do you highlight and draw the eye around in this riotous moment in very controlled ways?
0: But it's really just careful. a
1: red and white painting. It is. You realize how restricted the palette is. Yeah. Hey. But in a different way than that one of the kids in the boat. But then take, look at this. So pull up the, um, if you can pull up side by side. Um, uh, let's see if I can the, do that. The two um, moments that are, um, so image, the image next to it, and then skip an image. Um, so that one, pull up that one, and pull up this one. Oops. These are Can I do all three? No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. These are true to color. These are true to color in real life. Well, how did... Notice... You? Really? You're that confident? How warm... Yeah, look, I, I am pretty confident um, for the most... well. Well, because these whites are very
0: warm compared to these whites. The whites
1: are very different. Yeah. But there is something to this. What I'm about to say. Okay. Notice the skin temperatures, at least in the top two, which are closer in their values of being accurate. Photos. Yeah, I believe
0: the top two more Notice than the bottom. How, yeah. So get rid.
1: Can you get rid of that bottom one? Uh. Yes. Notice the skin temperature differences in just the figures as we get closer and all. And how he's, I mean, some of these figures.
0: So you're suggesting the skin gets warmer. cooler as it comes forward? Is that what you're saying?
1: I think that's true. I think it's true. I don't.
0: Which seems backwards it's, to it's, me. And somehow it, it, it's working. It's
1: interesting when you, whether or not he gets cooler or warmer in the front, in the foreground or the background, notice at the very least the huge range of values in the skin that he's done. It's very careful, very very careful, how he's pulling you towards some faces with almost. I mean, look at that on the left hand side. Look at that woman in the background
0: and yeah, how right green here. she look right? Right here.
1: Yeah, look at how green she looks, and then look at how almost red that baby is in the painting on the right. But in the top, the top left of that painting, notice how oh, yeah, warm yeah, yeah, up there, the like pure vermilion on his cheeks, right? like it's just it's it's insane how um how careful some of these choices are of how he's pushing some figures into the back pulling them forward with different approaches this is him working in his late 50s early 60s right and 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 he's doing some of his best work
0: so i have to point out the creepy uh wedding crasher back here (laughs)
1: <laughs> i don't know if
0: it's creepy it means now zero
1: now, now go back on the entire scene okay have you ever seen those really bad 19th century scenes where it's a it's like of an entire room of people and the person del- definitely met with each individual and made sure their portrait was in the painting and it doesn't look natural at all because everybody's face is perfectly visible
0: yeah Okay. We've never seen those. Um, yeah, I have. So yeah.
1: They, in order to be realistic, you've got to make people look like they're creepers.
0: Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. So, well, that's the other thing that so pull, kind of leads up. to that photography idea, because be, before photography, a lot of times paintings were carefully composed so that everyone was visible.
1: Oh yeah. And, pull up the, the full size of this. Now that go away from the detail and then make this big, make this big if you can. So, I mean, one of the things that's so bold to me about this piece is the perspective is not entirely correct. You're kind of looking straight ahead at them, and you're looking down on that fountain at the same time. It's not really accurate.
0: No, the fountain's um, a little wonky, but uh, who am I to critique? Sorry, I couldn't paint this, so.
1: <laughs> no, and he's
0: also made it, uncharacteristically, um, yeah. look at
1: how he's trying to get us in the depth of that space. He's he's taken this room, and he's given us those pillars on the right, yeah. and he's made the garlands pull us into the into the into the background right Mm -hmm. and then the reason why i think he's put the fountain there is to increase the depth of field in the scene um by making it making that space deeper and
0: deeper by having you be the people be behind the fountain um yeah it's a weird placement of a fountain though i mean it were i mean i'm again i'm not critiquing i'm just thinking like if i were to do this i would have been afraid to do that because that is a really crazy yeah. tangent right there like the corner you know, i of that fountain is move. right at the edge of the canvas i know I, I know i don't think and
1: i don't entirely understand um i mean the figures that are in the middle of action are off-center deliberately it's kind of a golden mean moment yeah that makes where sense. that cross is right down mm-hmm. at the bottom you can see, you can see You can see that some of those choices he's making it's a one of the most complex scenes i think that he's painted and and um it's it shows i and it's huge by the way
0: it's roughly how big let me see well and that that's important It's it's 11 and a half feet high that's important to mention because things like what i mentioned with this tangent and this one with the chair scale yeah. is going to make a huge difference on how difficult that is to look at yeah right because what when you're looking at 11 foot painting then this span right here is a solid eight inches right it's a whole yeah. different thing yeah. and that's of course he's lo- he's painting on an original not on a tiny little computer screen
1: you know these these paintings and i i think we could spend an entire hour just talking about the vision of spain which is this this series of, I think it's 32 paintings that he does for that during the last 20 years of his life. He's doing other things at the same time, but this is really the bulk of his time. There are paintings of him going to mountainous regions of Spain with a with an eight foot tall canvas and the models and a five foot brush. And he's painting the scene out in the middle of a field. And then there are photographs that we have of moments that he's getting right and we also have him doing maybe just the woman who's holding the chair in the foreground as an individual portrait and he's sometimes he's doing um the whole canvas in plain air and sometimes he's doing the whole canvas from photograph and sometimes he's doing it from a combination Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um i don't know exactly know why he's always doing what he's doing but Mm. um the things that he's doing are, um, it's, you only see it near the end of his life, how complicated um, his working methods are and how they're not always, not always explainable as an art historian. Right. You know, I don't know why he always made the choices he made, but what I can't dismiss is how at a time when when people are demanding we live at a time where i've heard a certain kind of purity demanded from process right or a certain kind of um explanation as to why an artist ended up with a version with a with a certain quality of what they did the reason why i think seroy is such an interesting case study for artists is because he was really Accepting of many different approaches to what he did, but he always um, he and and you couldn't you couldn't pin him down as being an artist who was consistent in doing the same thing all the time when it came to subject matter. Or I mean, you look at the landscape, you look at the boy in the boat, you look at the religious painting. He was capable of a huge range. That portrait, which looks like Sargent or Zorn, he was capable of a huge range and all of them at a very high level. No one looks at Soroya and thinks he was confused or inconsistent, right? When we think of Soroya, we do think mostly of his ocean beach scenes. Yeah. Um, But I think it's important to know that... that, um, you can be an artist who can work with a large variety of tools and influences and and uh and and, and still work at a high level you're not betraying anything right
0: yeah that's well said well it's, i think it's, it's, it oh go ahead finish your thought no no, no go ahead go ahead. i think that this you mentioned his uh expanse expansive uh set of skills i think this is by far his greatest achievement not this particular not necessarily this particular painting but this complex large scale multi figure really saturated work that he ended up doing later in life i think is his best work in person that's I did too and, i
1: mean and and is it i mean is it um is it um how does he do it and make it feel accurate, but it's clearly designed,
0: right? That's it's why it's so great, because it's so freaking hard and it's, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's, there's there's no way you show up into this room
1: and have a clear line sight down the middle and everybody posed at this moment and get the motion, right? I mean, it's just, it's in so much of it. I don't think, I think if you were to say how much of this is designed slash invented and how much of it is observed, I think a lot of people want to think that it's, it's done entirely from life. And I think if that's what you get from Soroya, I think you're, you're wrong because I think that much of it is forced and designed and informed by his observations from life his ability to capture the motion of those 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 uh the the frills coming off the clothing are hanging on the structure that he's designed into the painting right yeah he's 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 it's this is what we can learn from soroya is this combination of design and observation which are part of a process I'm still trying to figure out and that I don't think is entirely described in works on it. Well, and and invention.
0: Can I add invention to that? Because I think invention is really true. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Because he's, he, you can't freeze this scene, and particularly even back then. So today we could put on, uh, you know, really on our cameras, we could set a really high ISO, fast shutter speed, stick it on a tripod, have everyone dance, take one shot and then copy that picture, which is, What many artists are doing today. But back then, you had to, you had you people don't even smile for photos because they can't hold still enough for the long shutter speed, right?
1: So this true.
0: So photos are no photos. This is a Frankenstein painting. This is like this is something that has been invented by pulling together architecture, you drapery, the furniture all those figures independently of one another and and all frankenstein together into this complex composition that's the only way oh, it can yeah. be done yeah so it's so and, and you difficult
1: in those choices of having that woman in the bottom right who's got maybe the brightest white in the entire painting and then z- going to the um upper Left from her to the window, which is also very bright, mm-hmm. and you draw the line between the two of them and see the gestures that go all the way down through that. Right? Yeah, your eye you just pull- goes whoop
0: right up through there.
1: You, it's it, that is the stuff he learned as an academic history painter. It's the thing that pulls you in t- from the foreground to the background of the painting. Right, you go and it's 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 values it's it's um highlighting things it's the gestures it's things that if you were to set up that camera with the high iso and the fast shutter speed
0: you wouldn't get those arms all lifted at different heights right no you'd be a slave Um, to what happened to What what happened in that moment and you're stuck with it
1: yep and he's deliberately making those arm gestures pull across a certain way he's deliberately Tilting heads in different angles and ways that pull you, just all those figures that are grouped together on the left um of the painting, from the guy who's behind by the window and following that line that goes to the woman to the left of that, to the baby, and then down mm. like a zigzag to the woman who's turned her head right here to the other women that are in the yeah, like all the yeah. way those those are very carefully chosen gestures of how the heads are looking in different directions and pulling you around the piece. He's he's really just um he's he, he makes it these design choices look natural. And and I uh, I I I think I've become obsessed with him as a craftsperson, right? Mm-hmm. I remember one time I was I was in this um this meeting at Sotheby's and it was right as they were getting a major work by Soroya. And I was being interviewed by the head of the 19th century department and one of the director the director of Sotheby's um, at the time was there. And we're sitting in this meeting, and you know, these guys are used to writing catalog entries that are driven by personality. And they would write about like, oh, this Picasso painting um was uh was of his mistress, and he was 60 at the time, and his mistress was 17 years old. And that would be the bulk of the entry, right? And I remember this Soroya painting was coming up, and they wanted me to come in and weigh in on it. And I tell them about his complex, his work ethic, and his complex set of influences, and how careful he was in putting together a piece. And one of the people said, um, how many mistresses did Soroya have in the middle of the meeting? And I said, what? What? He said, Well, I mean, he must have been a really interesting guy. <laughs> Is she fantasizing or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, And I remember thinking, and it's interesting what our view of art as consumers of art and creators of art for a hundred years between Soroya Soroya's death in eighteen in nineteen twenty three. I mean they're having a hundred year anniversary of him in Spain next year. And there are going to be lots of exhibitions, and um, he grew up in a craft-driven era—the craft of painting, the work of painting—and he died in a personality-driven era. Yeah. Uh, these were. This is our manifesto on art. This is my personality. This is my philosophy of art. And people who are mostly driven by personality and philosophy of manifestos and art as a throwing this into an ism? Is he an impressionist? Is this impressionism? Is it realism? Is it this ism? They don't, you can't understand Soroya that way. You have to understand the craft of making art and how hard it is to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. He's just a painter.
1: Yeah. And if you don't understand, like going back to that woman that he painted with floppy
0: breasts. Mm-hmm. To this, <laughs> well, they weren't that bad,
1: <laughs> no, no, no but he, he yeah, defined, right, right. To this, and realizing that in some ways it's a full circle because he did learn the lessons of design and not just painting what he saw all the time, right? And that's what his teachers are trying to tell him don't just paint what you see, right? Yeah, you know, add some design elements into it, and then you see later. He did it in his own way, but in an unorthodox, non-academic approach. He was very design-oriented with what he did.
0: So, all right. So I'm going to ask you a question in closing. That's yeah. sort of out in left field, but how do you think he felt about Picasso? He must have he must have known know. of Picasso. They're both Spanish. He died sure he in Picasso's I mean, heyday.
1: I mean, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a lot of flack for this, but I'll stand by it. Casso was a flunky of the academy. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. And, and 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 I've I've he studied in um in in uh, Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona did have its kind of separate academy from the from the rest of the Spanish academies. And when you look at his so many people say, "Oh, well he could do realism or he, he could couldn't. do drawing, but but uh, he chose not to." But he was at the bottom of his class.
0: Yeah. Of of his drawing. He, was he wasn't that at best.
1: And I think that, personally, I think Picasso was a genius in his own idiom, in his own way, right? Um, but it wasn't on the same way that Soroya judged his own work, right? Yeah. Or other people's work. It's like they were playing totally different sports um, in the way they did. I don't know if they ever ran into one another. I think that Soroya would have gotten along with Dali,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that he and DeLi would have understood one another and spoken the same language. Because there was underlying a real um, understanding of design, anatomy, messing with rules. I mean, they were both trained at the sa- in the same tradition, essentially. Um, I think that it's an interesting question. Picasso and Sorolla
0: because in his lifetime, he saw art kind of turn on its head, you know? Um, he
1: did, he did. And I think that he, and a Spaniard was
0: was like at the front of it. Like at the head of the whole movement.
1: I think, you know, it's, it's funny. There's a, there was an article I was recently reading about how hard it was for, um, Miro, Picasso, uh, uh, and and those and Rothko and others too, who were later, to get a foothold in America, because the people in America were still buying old masters and traditional art. the the wealthy The wealthy were up until the nineteen forties and fifties. It wasn't really until the sixties, seventies, and eighties that America fell in love with modernism. And Soroya's best audience, just like Bouguereau's best audience, was Americans during the the turn of the century to the 20s, hmm. right? And so Soroya, those people, Picasso wasn't really making money and wasn't as popular as Soroya was, not even close. Really? Right? I didn't know that. So, yeah, Soroya was doing way better, and he probably thought of Picasso as a minor figure. And, and a lot of those guys as being minor, minor players in, in the world. Hmm. There's a really funny story by um, the poet uh, the poet Pablo Neruda, who's Chilean, but he was living in Europe and he didn't like Picasso, and he was much more of the type who liked the Soroyas of the world. And there's a story of, of Neruda always wrote in a green marker his um signature. and he was invited to an ambas- as an ambassador as the ambassador to France from Chile. He was at a party where Picasso was and where this giant Picasso painting was being unveiled. And it was at the top of the stairs. And Neruda walks up the stairs in front of everybody, pulls out his marker and signs Pablo Neruda on the Picasso painting and says, now it's worth something. Oh,
0: snap. Oh, man.
1: That's classic.
0: <laughs> so
1: there was a lot of that kind of snobbery that went on. Of There were a bunch of people. Picasso really struggled for a while. Hmm. to get his name out there he didn't really hit paydirt until well like 20 or 30 years after
0: Soroya was gone oh okay right? oh that's really yeah. interesting well um let's do that um if if you're down with that let's do the next one next month where we get some sketches and stuff together and try and dissect his process does that sound good
1: that would be fabulous okay. i think i'd learn a lot from that too yeah, yeah i've learned great. a
0: ton today thanks for sharing your expertise. Um, It was awesome. I really appreciate you doing this, Micah. I love doing it, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. All right, the best. See you next month. You too. Take care. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.